The early church used creeds to spread the gospel and truths of God. In this series, we'll be exploring the Apostles' Creed through Scripture to learn why we believe what we believe. For more information, visit us online at lifepointpeople.com. Good morning again. Hey, if this is your first time here or you've uh, missed the last few weeks, we are in this series called the Apostles' Creed. It's about a 12-week series. And the goal of it was to go line by line through the Apostles' Creed, which is what you just heard. That's the Apostles' Creed. Now, just to get a few things out there, how many people grew up having to say or knowing the Apostles' Creed? Just show of hands. Look around. You can see quite a few people, right? And part of what it becomes is, uh, becomes a little bit legalistic, like, yes, I have to say it. I believe in God the Father. And it becomes just something we say. And what I was really impressed upon, what I've always sort of stood by in, is in all of the debates on theology, right? All of the debates about who's right and, and then all of the splits in Christianity even between the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Reformed and the Evangelicals and then us crazy non-denominationals who don't want to label, well, you got to have something, right? Between all of it, there comes this question of what do I actually stand on? What is truth? How we celebrate Easter here this morning, is it going to be based in truth? Is there going to be people who look at it and say, well, that's not true. You can't do that, right? Pastor cannot wear a shirt like that from stage. It's distracting, draws way too much attention. I've already been asked, are you wearing a muumuu? Are those your grandmother's curtains? Did you lose a bet? Yes to all of the above. Uh, and so we'll always argue on things. But what I've held to as I've gone through my years of study and, and schooling even is I kind of have to hold all of it real lightly, right? The things, the sacred cows that the church loves to like hey, don't hang on to. Well, you got to do this. You got to preach this on uh, Advent. You've got to preach this on Easter. I've kind of thrown a lot of that out as I went back and looked over my last few Easter sermons. I realized like none of them were actually Matthew 28, which talks about Jesus rising from the dead, because I like to just sort of change expectations. But the one thing I won't change, period, the one thing I will not alter in any way is what it talks about in the Apostles' Creed. It's what I'm sort of dogmatic about, what, what, what I'll defend. And so my goal in the series was to get anybody who would be a part of it or listen to it to say, are these things worth defending? Now, we agree and stand on this, that there is no power in the creed by itself. The creed does not have any power. When we stand together and say it, it does not hold any power. It's not an incantation. The creed merely reflects Scripture, or it should. And that's why we're walking through it, to make sure Scripture lines up with what we're saying, right? And so what it does is it's much like the moon reflects the light of the sun. The moon has no light of its own, but because it reflects the light of the sun, it gives us light. And that's what the creed should do. It should firm up our foundations on the main, uh, the core things of our belief. Does that make sense? So if you're here for the first time, you're catching us on a really cool day, which is when we say in the creed, on the third day he rose again from the dead. What a, what a, what a sentence. I mean, we've already affirmed a virgin birth in the creed, like cuckoo, crazy. Why not say a man rose himself from the dead a few, a few verses later? And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about not only did it happen, is there proof that it happened, but can you, as a modern-day thinking evangelical Christian, is it something you can believe? Can you really believe Jesus 
rose from the dead under his own power. We're going to talk about that. So, as we've gone through it, we've said that we reject certain things. We reject materialism. We reject nationalism. We reject this idea that we can be our own gods. And there's certain things with each line. And so, with this line, the third day he rose again, the thing I want to reject, it isn't an ism. It's a C.S. Lewis uh, quote. But we reject chronological snobbery, right? You got to love you got to love the word snobbery. Try to use that today at Easter. It'll be a little fun treat for you. <laughs> we, we, rele- we reject chronological snobbery. What is that? That is saying we are smarter than our ancestors. We are smarter people. We are more thinking, technologically advanced people. And so what C.S. Lewis, he termed it chronological snobbery. And so as Christians, we often look at the early believers in the churches. Well, of course they believed he rose from the dead. They were gullible people. They were uneducated people. They were just hoping for somebody like him to come along. So it was easy for them to believe. But we have science and iPhones, and there's no way that we can fall for this. Does that sound, I mean, I know I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but not much. Not much. This is a difficult concept for the modern Christian to move, now pay attention, to move from knowledge to belief. Remember, with the creed, how does it start out? I know. Come on, somebody correct me. I believe right? I believe, and we talked in the very first week, the difference between knowledge and belief. You can have knowledge of something, but not believe it, right? Like, Feeney has knowledge that he should work out, but he doesn't believe it. (laughs) He's finally here. I've made fun of him for three straight services, and he wasn't in the first two. And so, I can just get, can I get off now? Like, do I even need to keep preaching? I, I love Matt. That's why I make fun of him so much. And so here's the deal is that if we don't believe that Christ rose again, bodily rose, not spiritually, not he fainted and was mostly dead, but that he actually died and rose again, then I, I, want, I want you to seriously question your walk right now with the Lord. Because if all he did was die for your sins, then so what? There's lots of people who have died for other people, and it's sacrificial, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, but it doesn't save you from the grips of hell. It doesn't satisfy and bring you into justification with an almighty God unless he defeats death by rising again. So you can believe all you want in the crucifixion, and we have shown clearly that outside of the scriptures that that happened, a man named Jesus went before Pilate, he was hung on a cross, and he was crucified. That happened. But can you move from knowledge to belief the resurrection on the third day? That's what we want to talk about. Matthew 28, 1 through 10 is where we're going to be. Grab a Bible. Go ahead. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. Just open it up. It has that new Bible smell. If you don't have one, take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Enjoy it. Mark it up. Color in it. It's your Bible. Matthew 28. It's the very first book of the New Testament. This is the uh, story of the tomb being opened, and the resurrection of our God. This is where we learn about it from the disciple, the apostle Matthew. Verse 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Can we just take a minute there? Mary Magdalene and what's-her-face 
went to see the tomb. That's what the scriptures say. Like, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Like, you weren't important enough to actually get, like, a last name or the city you were born in or any, like, you know, brown-haired Mary, freckles, the one with the hairy mole. Nothing. Just the other Mary. And people were like, oh, the other Mary. Uh Uh-huh. I know her. I know her. That's the deal is there were only, like, six names back then. So you were either Mary Magdalene or you were the other Mary. Just enjoy it. That's how you read Scripture. It's fun. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it like a boss. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See and have great joy. So they saw, had great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Yo, what's up, Mary? Other Mary? I'm slightly ad-libbing. You have to have a Bible open to know where. Um, they came up and took a hold of his feet, and they began to worship him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers in Galilee that I will meet them there. So here it is. This is the account, and we'll see this account in the other Gospels. But this is the account of Jesus has just raised himself from the dead. This is the power Hear me, this is the power that is going to fill their 11 remaining disciples with the courage and boldness to go and preach him to the masses. To go and literally stand in the city square against the leaders and the authorities who are coming to imprison them or beat them and preach the name of Jesus until they physically remove them. All of these men will go to their graves and die on behalf of this man. And what the world wants to tell us is that, yes, he was crucified, yes, Jesus existed, yes, he claimed to be the Son of God, but at the end of the day, he was a great teacher, a great prophet, and there's no way he rose from the dead. It's a myth. Come on, it's story time. That's foolishness. Well, let's just think pragmatically then. We're logical people, most of us. Let's think pragmatically. Let's look at his 11 disciples. Were these like men in David's army? Are these warriors? Would you look at these men like you would Joshua who took on Jericho? Are they just, just mountains of men? Anybody? Anybody know these guys? No. They're scared little girly boys. And, and at the first sign of trouble, Peter pulled out. It says his sword, but I imagine it was like a Swiss army knife. And it's like, Gah! and he like tries to cut off the air. T-Rexed it. And he comes in and it's just like... Then all of a sudden they arrest Jesus. The man they've been following for three years is gone. And what's the scriptures tell us? They scattered. They're like, I'm out. And then even Jesus most close, his right-hand man, Peter, who swore, even if I must die, I will not deny you. Three times. I don't know him. It's not me. You got the wrong feller, right? And he's sitting there. And then the Bible tells us that he doesn't just deny him, but at one point he actually begins to curse at them and swear. Look, I don't know the jerk. Yeah, I said it. He's a jerk. I don't know him. Would I say that about a guy I like? No, I wouldn't. And Peter just totally denies him. These are cowardly men. But before you begin to look down on them, before you begin to look at them and say, oh, if I was there, no, you wouldn't. Let's just be honest. 
No, you wouldn't have. These men were leading the charge. These men were leading the charge of meeting God face to face and communing with Him. Do you understand that? I'm not talking face to face in a metaphorical aspect like we see the great prophets or the great kings of the Old Testament. I'm talking they're standing in front of God Almighty Himself. And they're trying to get their minds wrapped around this that He's right there. And they're trying to get their minds wrapped around that he just allowed himself to be taken prisoner. Remember, most of these are good Jewish little boys who grew up knowing that one day the Messiah would come and that he would bring peace and, and, and he would bring the Jewish, the, Israel, the uh, Israelite nation into power and they would overthrow their enemies. And so they're having to untrain their minds from years of that kind of teaching under just three years of Christ's teaching of him saying, I am the promised one. I am going to overthrow the powers of sin and death, but I'm not going to do it how you expect. And now they just watched him get arrested like a commoner. Do you understand this? Is this making sense? Am I relaying this well? So that's why, yeah, they ran. Yeah, they denied. Yeah, they were scared. But so would have you. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have it all wrapped up in a nice leather-bound thing, sure of the fact that this was him. They didn't have the thousands of years of history we've had. They didn't have the martyrs who have died in his name to look at and watch. So what made such cowardly men so brave? Well, a popular theory is that Jesus just swooned. He fainted. (laughs) That somehow you could lose three to four gallons of your own blood, have a spear rammed up through your side into your heart and asphyxiate on a cross and then you just passed out because it was too much is one of the most theological words, stupid things I've ever heard. But then let's just imagine that that's what happened. And then he somehow figured out a way to get out of the mummification process of being wrapped up, put in a tomb with a rock so big that it was rolled in by multiple men and then sealed shut. It's just, okay, he got past all that. He dug himself out like a little ferret, got out. He then limped his broken, beaten body across miles of desert, like knocks on the door where they're at. He's like, hey, guys, I'm risen. How much confidence do you think that instills? Jesus, did you really die? No, I just swooned. It's a big-time swoon. No. That's not confidence building. I don't care if he was brought back and was being propped up like weekend at Bernie's and like made to look like he was alive. Like, I don't care if he was bandaged up. None of that. The Bible tells us he was resurrected with a new body, which is why the disciples who met him on the road to Emmaus didn't even recognize him. But they recognized his spirit. They said, wait a minute. That was just Jesus. That was Jesus we were talking. But how can that be? He's... We watched him. He hung on the cross. He's dead. That's because he's a resurrected body. Acts 1.8 says that his physical body ascended. And 1 Thessalonians says it will be his physical body that returns. Let me give you another little tongue twister that you'll enjoy at Easter. Where is Jesus right now? Where is he? It's like a game of where's Waldo. Where's Jesus? Because his, his resurrected body does not decay. I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. His resurrected body 
is not subject to disease or time like ours are. We have perishable bodies. His is imperishable. Where is he? Is he just hanging out? I love it. We've got like two young girls over here with their hands up. They know the answer. And all you adults are like, "Mm mm-mm, I'm not doing it. I want to so bad, but I'm going to forego it right now for time's sake. I just, I want to know what her answer is. But uh, theologians, this is like brain food for them to sit there and be like, oh, this is where he must be, and he's hanging out here, and he shows. But he's alive. His body is somewhere, and it is imperishable, and he's alive. He could be sitting in here right now. I, I want to warn you, though, he's not going to be the uh, long-haired, six-foot-six, rock-style body, blue eyes, right? Just warning, the Europeans got that wrong. I know what you're thinking, that somehow in the middle of a culture where all the men are five foot tall, dark black hair, big black beards, brown eyes, that somehow this European, like God, was born into them. (laughs) We laugh, but you have a picture of him hanging up in your house, so don't laugh too much. No, the truth is, he, he, he's here. He's somewhere. And so, if we really want to wrestle with this question or whether or not we can trust these historical documents, can we really trust the Scriptures? Can we really trust uh, the, the accounts of the eyewitnesses? Let me just put it before you, that if the world has tried to show that Christ didn't actually raise from the dead through the swoon theory, then their other theory is this, is that the witnesses came centuries later and that you could make up whatever you wanted. Well, once again, look at the facts. No, they didn't. The Gospels are written within 30 to 60 years of his death and, and, and made publicly known and start to be spread out. Paul's letters are written within 15 years of his death. And so here's the deal, that if you take a subject, so Richard Bachman, who's a, a university professor at St. Andrews, wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and he says this, If you wanted to tell people, and you wrote a book about it, that you raised somebody from the dead, and you did it in the generation of the people who's going to be reading it, don't you think you should have actually raised them from the dead? See, if I want to write a book about raising somebody from the dead, or I want someone to write it about me, but I want them to write it, say, 2230, then I can have them say whatever they want about me. Nathaniel the Great, lion killer is how it will start. Lived in the Santan Valley, greatest, largest city in all of the Western world. That's how it will start. And then it'll have all sorts of stories about me. And who are you going to know in 200 years whether it's true or not? But these stories are being written. So when the story of Jesus raising the widow's son from the dead means that the widow's son would have been out in the town square. The whole town would have known that he was dead. Jesus would have walked in, bam, risen the child from the dead. The child would have had a revived body, been alive and it would have spread like wildfire. Everyone would have been talking about it. Well, then all of a sudden, these apostles come, and they write about it as they tell of the things Jesus did, and they go, yeah, I remember that. I was there. I remember that. Now imagine if it didn't happen. Do you think the Bible really, really gained traction? Don't you think someone would have stand up and been like, look, these stories are all false. I lived there. I know what this is talking about. He didn't do this. That blind man still sits on the corner. He doesn't have his sight. But nobody could. No, you see, people didn't come to Christ by the threes and the five and the ten thousands because Peter was a great speaker. Because 
because Paul was an unbelievably persuasive person. No, they came because what they were seeing was, I saw this man, I heard these stories, I know Bartimaeus, I know this king, I know that guy, and everything they're saying is true. Do you get that? It's tough for us. We're 2,000 years removed. But we have the Scriptures. We have the stories. So let me ask you this question. If Christ appeared to you and you could see him, I mean right in front of your eyes, what would you say? Would you say, my Lord, and fall down at his feet and worship? Or would you wonder if it was aspirin you took this morning and not something else? And I guess it's the second. Because a logical thinking person is going to have to question whether or not they're physically staring at Christ, God Almighty, a man who was hung on a cross and murdered. How, how do I know? How do I know that's him? I'll give you one that'll really trip you out. How do you know you haven't ran into him? How do you know he hasn't been there at times of your life, giving you a word? You don't think he's still around? Again, this is just for you to enjoy at Easter. So here's the deal. The disciples, those who knew Jesus, those who who witnessed his miracles, they're just normal people. We need to take them off the pedestal of Scripture, off the pedestal of being the 11 or the 12 disciples, and we just need to recognize they're just people like you and I. Mary and what's-her-face, just people like you and I. Here's the deal. The Jews did believe in a resurrection, but they believed it would come in the end times that God would come, defeat death, resurrect, and it would be this beautiful thing like the phoenix rising from the ashes. And so when God comes in the middle of history, they're like, what? Come again? You mean we still have to suffer? We still have to be under Rome's rules or whatever next mega superpower is going to come around and keep us under their thumb? Yeah, because my goal is not to come and free you from your physical restraints. It's come to free you from your moral and emotional and spiritual ones. And it's a much more difficult job than to just put you in power. And so, was there a looking for a resurrected king? There was, but not how Jesus did it. And so, that leaves us to this. And this scripture, after reading it now two services, I realize it's very difficult to understand the way it reads. So, if you're taking notes or you want to go home and read it all together, then do that. But I'll spare you from reading the whole thing right now. But 1 Corinthians 15 42 through 55. If you're wondering about this resurrected body, if you're wondering what does it look like, what will I look like, does it matter? Well, for some of us it does. And so I get asked all the time as a pastor, if I was born without limbs, if I was born with this disability, for heaven's sakes, I have allergies, it drives me nuts, am I going to have allergies in the afterlife? Like, yeah, that over there. That's Nathaniel, my disciple, and then the other Nathaniel. He has allergies. The guy sneezes at everything. It's annoying. What if you were born with a mental or physical disability? What if you had something happen to you while you were alive? What do you resurrect as? Do you resurrect as the 21-year-old version of yourself, like the strong, vibrant? Do you resurrect as yourself without the disability? You know, the Bible actually answers this question. It's just sort of confusing, and, and I admit that. It's, it's difficult to read through, but if you take the time 
to read it, to, to look at the commentary on it, to understand what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthian, you realize he's answering this exact question, and he is affirming Christ's resurrected body, not just a spiritual resurrection, not just Christ healed really fast from all of the wounds he had, but he was given a new resurrected body just as you and I will be. He answers that. So verse 42, and I'll just read parts of it here. So is it with the resurrection of the dead that what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What he's saying is what is sown into the ground when we die is perishable. That's obvious. That's our bodies. But what will be raised will be imperishable. That's why I posed the question to you, where's Jesus? Because his physical body is somewhere. It didn't die. It didn't rot. It didn't go away. He didn't toss it out in the ocean after he ascended into the clouds. He's somewhere. It is sown in dis- what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. Death is ugly. Nobody, no matter how beautiful you are, leaves this earth looking good. Right? Death is just an ugly thing. So what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. I want to skip all the way down to verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You guys remember those words from like 30 minutes ago? (laughs) Right? Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You hold no power over me. This is Paul writing this saying, look, I realize the trials and the tribulations you go through on a weekly, daily basis with these perishing bodies. But I'm telling you, when you put your hands in the life of Jesus Christ, and when you pass away from this life, you will be given an imperishable body, and death will have no victory over you. Disease, bacteria, sickness has no victory over you. In fact, there's an author who writes, I think it's Lewis, but I'm not certain, who writes and says that all of the organs that our body currently uses to protect itself, like the liver, right, or the skin, will be used to glorify the Lord all the more. Because it will have no need to protect us from the things that can hurt us. Because we will be in an imperishable body. And I'm telling you, my body has already started the descent. Amen? You know that feeling? Right? Like, it is tough to be in a 28-year-old body right now. It's just difficult. That's enough, babe. Let them think I'm 28. I don't know when it happened. I just remember being able to do everything my mind thought I could do, and then all of a sudden it was like, and it's just gone like a freight train downhill. Like if I sleep for eight hours, I'm in trouble. I could actually hurt myself. I will pull my neck or my lower back. I wake up three or four times a night and like this, and my arm's numb, and I taste almonds. I don't think that's good. And it's just weird how much that the more I sleep, the worse I feel when I wake up. And then I go in and I see my son and he's like, <clears throat> for 10 hours. And he wakes up like, oh yeah, what do you want to go do? You want to go ride bikes? Let's go ride bikes. He wants some of my Red Bull sometimes. And I'm like, oh, heavens no. Could you imagine a six-year-old on Red Bull? My body is on the descent. I have already reached as fast as I will ever be. Unfortunately, probably as skinny as I will ever be. And... Um, And our bodies are breaking down. We sense that. We know that. Everyone knows that. We're perishable. There's a time clock on us all. In fact, on my way in this morning at 5.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, you always wonder what's on the radio, and there's this talk show uh, between two guys debating something called lifespan, where 
apparently really close to the technology to being able to fix organs, repair organs, use robotic organs, stem cells, everything else to get us to live to 140 years old. Huh? Where are all my 70, 80-year-olds at? How's that? Another 60, 70 years on this planet? You good with that? All right. Yeah, not a lot of... Uh, I just <laughs> The 20-year-olds are like, rock on, I'll take it. You just wait, 20-year-olds, 10 years. It goes downhill so fast. And so what the other guy is debating is, no, we shouldn't do this. It's evolution. It's part of the process. They're supposed to die off in 70 to 80 years. And then the next generation is supposed to come in and work. And then the other guy says, no, what if we could make those last 60 years, those extra 60 years, be like when you were in your 20s and 30s? What if we could overcome disease and, and health problems and issues that we're currently struggling with that make those years so tough? Well, then what you want it? Now, now all my 70, 80-year-olds are like, eh, maybe. Wouldn't you want it? And what I got from listening to this in the short drive from my house to the church here was that we are trying to avoid death. We do everything we can to avoid death. For heaven's sakes, our cars will break for us now because we are too ridiculous. We're like, just a sec, I got to see what Facebook says. Oh my gosh, there's a semi. If you think I'm joking, that's the commercial. Like one of the commercials is the dad arguing with his daughter and then has to slam on the brakes because he's about to kill a bus full of kids. But fortunately, his car is smarter than him because he's an idiot. And that's what the commercials are saying. Look, you've all got things going on and you're basically stupid. So we got a car that will break for you. And then in case you actually do get in an accident, it has 28 bags of air that will cradle you like a cloud because we're freaked out about death. We're freaked out about perishing. <laughs> and that's okay. I think it's normal. I mean, I don't want to die. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to be healthy. But if we're going to sing the words, oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? If we're going to claim that we believe in a God who rose from the dead, then believe it. Live like it. Eleven cowardly men, twelve if you include Paul, changed their entire lives because they believed in a resurrected man. They believed that that man was God. And they believed that if they could teach people about who he was, that he could change their lives for the better and instill hope where there's meaningless and instill power where there's weakness. Do you get that? Do you believe it on that level? Right now, today, do you believe in a resurrected God on that level? Because if you just believe him on the level that gets you to heaven and not hell, then he's not going to change anything in your life. And you're going to spend the rest of your life wondering, where is all the power I hear of? Where is all the support I hear of in finances and in my relationships? I'm telling you, you got to go all in with it. But none of the disciples went halfway. None of them kept a house in the Hamptons just in case the disciple thing didn't work out. They went all in with it. And they all died brutally because of it. I want to invite the band back out. We're going to close with communion. About four weeks ago, the Lord laid it on my heart that as a church, we would continue to observe communion every week. We would start observing communion every week. And that it wouldn't be something we do out of legalism, that it wouldn't be something we do because religiously we're supposed to, but that every week it would give you an opportunity to remember what we're talking about today. That our God died on a cross, that he bled for us, and that that death 
And on the third day, the resurrection is what justifies us against an almighty and righteous God, that he paid the penalty for us. You guys can begin to pass it out as you come forward. We, we observe an open communion here at LifePoint, which means if you have a relationship with God, I don't care if your background is Catholic or Presbyterian or whatever. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can take it. There's two cups stacked on top of each other. Take both of them and hang on to it, would you? We're going to partake together here in a moment as, as the Scriptures call us to. But if you don't have that relationship, just let the bread and the juice pass. Don't take it because your neighbor did. Just let it pass. But here's the deal. If you have a relationship with the Lord and you know you struggled, you know you've been away from him, you know that you have some things that you are not right with in your life, then let it pass and you come forward. Up here at this altar, when the ushers are done, they're going to lay the bread and the juice up here. And you come forward and you boldly and courageously say, Lord, renew me. Take these things from me that I've been struggling with. And then feel free to take communion. And if you're here and you've never taken communion, you've never given your life to the Lord, you've always just heard this as a story, but something struck you today, then you come forward too. And you take, you give your life to God and you take communion for the first time. There's nothing better we can give you as a church than the opportunity to do that. So while the ushers are passing it out, let there be a moment of silence here. Let there be a moment of self-reflection, self-examination. So I've presented before you a lot of really good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's a lot more than what I've presented here. And there's a lot of good reasons to believe it happened, and it did happen. But it's not enough for you to believe if you just understand it as a fact. First off, you must know the Scriptures are alive. And I'm not talking about memorizing the Judges or Chronicles or Kings. But I'm saying they are alive in understanding the message of God, which is that Christ died for your sins and then rose on the third day to conquer death in your place. And the gospel is a way for you to really have him in your life, to really know him, to sense his presence. That's why he gave us the gospel. He can be as real to you as the person you're sitting next to. He can be he must be because he's risen. Up in the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting around with the men who would carry on the message that God had come and intervened in history. Even Judas, who would betray him, was there. And before they began to eat, he grabbed the bread, as was customary. 
and he broke it and began to pass it out. He said, this I give you, this bread is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat now together. And after the meal was finished, he took the cup and he told them, this is my blood which will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take each of you and drink in remembrance. Father, as we observe communion here this morning, on the anniversary, Lord, of the day you rose, the day by your power you rolled away the stone from the tomb entrance, you walked out with a resurrected body, you conquered death, you conquered sin's grasp in our lives and our hearts, and you opened the door to something new and, and real and incredible. And you gave us this symbol, Father, to remember it. That when we become lost in our journey, when the world beats us down, when our decisions, Father God, bring about trials upon ourselves, you gave us this symbol. You said, this is my body, this is my blood, take and drink in remembrance. And so we remember you now, Lord, this morning. Help us where we are weak, that we may become strong. In Jesus' name. Amen.